In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So you'll notice our sermon title today is The Last Thing a Fish Would Ever Notice. Perhaps many of us are familiar with this quote. I heard it as a kid and it's stuck with me ever since. It comes from an American anthropologist named Dr. Ralph Linton, who lived through the first half of the 20th century. His full statement reads, the last thing a fish would ever notice would be the water. Now he was using the analogy to describe how hard it is to see how our culture shapes our identity and our actions. Now I'll be honest, until recently I had no idea what he was talking about. I didn't know that was what he meant. Um, In my mind, what it meant was, it's all fun and games until you jump out of the aquarium. You see, there was a reason for that. When I was in junior high, I had a 30-gallon aquarium uh, by my bedside. And I had different kinds of fish, but for a very short time, I had a particular fish that liked to jump out of the water. And I thought, well, that's odd. I hope he doesn't do something dumb. Well... One morning, as I went to get out of bed, I rolled over and I stepped on something that didn't feel like hardwood at all. And uh, sometime in the middle of the night, this, this fish had apparently jumped out and stuck himself right to my floor. And he was extra stuck by the time my brain told my foot, foot to pick up. So the last thing that fish noticed was that it had left the water and was heading toward a very unpleasant situation. So that's what stuck in my mind. It was a reminder that the direction I choose has real consequences. Now, while I missed what Dr. Linton's illustration was specifically trying to communicate, I think we both sort of came to the same conclusion. So thankfully, it saves us from having to angle at the illustration from two different directions. Our lesson from Hebrews today teaches us some great stuff about who we are as people in the kingdom of God, but also our trajectory. In other words, what our lives are aiming at. So as we begin, it's very plain that God's expectation for his people are lives of faithfulness and godly action. And perseverance isn't easy. And to top it off, we know that to walk away from life in Christ would be a worse fate than have ever denying him in the first place. All of this is what's wrapped up in our immediate context of our Hebrews passage. And so when we pick up in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, we see that the Jewish Christians, to whom this letter was originally addressed, they appeared to have been off to a good start. For some time, they were bold enough in following the Messiah Jesus. So much so, they were being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Even when they weren't suffering, they were actively standing alongside others in solidarity. In other words, they were looking to see where their brothers were suffering, and they were running to go suffer alongside them. They lost property. They were told to be quiet about their personal convictions and affections for outsiders. But they couldn't be stopped. And they were joyful in all they did because they knew there was a better reward waiting for them. 
And you know, Jesus wasn't a distant memory to them. You see, many alive, they had met him or his disciples. They'd seen his ministry or they knew some of his family. They knew that the King of Kings was coming back. But that first generation was dying off. And so something began to change their trajectory. They were drifting from lives that had been given over to seeing the kingdom of God coming through their lives in acts of sacrificial love. They were losing sight of living life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it gave way to lives of anxiety and self-preservation. They were on the edge of an identity crisis. If this sounds like some of our struggles today, get this. Jewish Christians were terribly isolated during that time. You see, nationalism and ethnocentrism, they were at feverish levels. The great Jewish revolt was in full swing. And within two years of this first audience hearing this letter, Jerusalem would fall to Rome. And the Roman legions would come in and erect their pagan banner over the rubble where the temple used to lay. You see, so there was really only one view that was popular of the Messiah. It was a pop culture view. And that was the only view that would make you friends at the synagogue or at the city gates. Continuing with this fish analogy, we see that it was the cultural water that these Jewish believers swam in before they met Christ. And it was the water that their friends and their family were still stuck in. It couldn't have been easy to go from what you've always known to now leaning on Gentiles as co-workers in the kingdom of God. There had to have been a terrible temptation to shrink back and to cave to that old identity. You know, but beautifully, the author of Hebrews takes the first nine and a half chapters and he lays it all on the line. He says, everything in their old lives as Jews finds its completion in Jesus Christ. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to all the prophets, to the priesthood and the sacrifices. He has made the once for all sacrifice, so there's nothing left for them to go back to. Still, they were struggling to cut through the war between their old culture and the culture of Christ's kingdom. Now, the author of Hebrews then brings the whole sermon to a head with this question. It is the question that shapes our reading today. Hebrews 10, 29 through 30 asks, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. The Lord will judge his people. His holiness and justice demands it. So, as chapter 10, verse 31 begins our reading, it says, It is a fearful thing to go on sinning deliberately and so fall into the hands of the living God. Again, this doesn't just fall at the feet of the first century Jews. It falls on us today. We are grafted into God's people. So using the language of Dr. Linton's fish analogy, we're God's fish, 
But he doesn't leave us unaware of the water we're swimming in now. So to go on sinning in light of Christ's sacrifice, it would be worse than rejecting Christ from the start. God's word says, My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we praise God for his grace. He also says, We're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So on one side, we have, Don't shrink away. But on the other side, we have, That's not who you are. And they exist together with equal weight. So really, the major thrust of this whole sermon is that Christ doesn't let us separate everything He has done from us from everything He expects of us. He's given us the family name, and we must live worthily. So our collect of the day that we prayed, it was the 25th Sunday after Pentecost, We prayed, stir up, O Lord, the wills of your faithful people, that bringing forth in abundance the fruit of good works, they may be abundantly rewarded when our Savior, Christ, comes to restore all things. Christ's kingdom, it has a culture, and that culture is shaped by faith and action, and it's marching confidently toward the restoration of all things. That's the culture war we fight first. Now, that leads us to an important second point. There is another culture war that we live in. The culture that is not the culture of the kingdom of God. Its one purpose is to muddy the water that we're swimming in. So just consider our American culture for a minute. It has all these subcategories, right? They're so polarizing and they're distracting. None of that is neutral Like the first century Jewish believers, there's a constant threat to becoming deluded by the devil's junk food version of the kingdom of God and the king. You know, we can become so deluded that we would enthusiastically suck down the lie until one day we find ourselves forced to reckon that we are outside the people of God. For all we thought about our identity and all our actions In the end, they revealed us as adversaries of Christ. So was it wrong for the Jews to desire deliverance from Rome? No, it wasn't. How many good or even biblical causes suck up our individual time and energy to the point of idolatry? What's most important? How do we know what's most important? These are the kind of questions that we need to ask if we want to persevere in our faith. So I'm going to work us towards a close and I want to offer some valuable insight that comes from the beginning of the book of Hebrews on how to persevere with confidence and bear the, the fruit that we ought to be bearing. You see, maybe many of us grew up hearing, if the Lord were to return today, what would he have to say to you? And that's a great instinct. And it sort of sounds like our reading today. But we don't know when the Lord will return. And especially in light of Hebrews and 2,000 years of them saying the Lord will return, it's just maybe not the right aim point for our lives. You see, Christ has given us a very natural aim point. But as Americans, we're blind to it. 
You see, everything in our comfort culture runs from it. But we should aim our efforts at our death. If we get this right, the Lord could come back at any time and He could find us faithful. So at the beginning of Hebrews, and this is chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, we hear, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So I'm going to be blunt. I've learned as a hospice chaplain, we could all die a lot better. And many of us are unnecessarily afraid of dying. You see, dying in Christ is part of sharing in the life that he lived victoriously for us. Our fear of death, it changed how we live our Christian life, how we describe our Christian life. It's even changed how we describe the gospel. So when we avoid death, we're avoiding the need for confession and repentance. And if we learn this lesson too late, it has eternal consequences. You know, it's sad how many people profess Christ many of whom they boast decades of service as leaders in the church doing gospel ministry. And then they spend their last years uninterested in having a church family, alone because they've abused and neglected their real family, and they die alone, just living distracted lives from what they know is inevitable. And then they meet Christ unexpectedly in denial that they ever needed to repent. Look, don't let that happen today. Let us show the world Christ is worth the confidence. So today, think back about your death. And it doesn't have to be morbid. I don't intend it to be morbid. You don't have to have black lipstick on. You don't have to paint your fingernails black. And you don't have to listen to bad music from the late 90s. But what we should do is let's ask God to help us imagine what it would be like to enter triumphantly into his rest, surrounded by family, loved ones, who are also trusting confidently in the promises of God. Let that picture of perseverance shape what we do today and tomorrow and every day the Lord decides to give us. Amen.